Communication specialists at BuckleSuite help artists and institutions imagine a world where every note resonates and every performance is a masterpiece. By combining their passion for the arts with over 20 years of experience in amplifying the voices of the performers and arts institutions, Amanda Sweet and BuckleSuite are driven by the belief that every performance deserves a spotlight and every artist deserves to be heard. BuckleSuite offers publicity, social media management, digital marketing, event planning, and video production services to a spectrum of clients in the arts. Explore what BuckleSuite can do for you at BuckleSuite.com. I'm Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Greetings and happy holidays. So glad to have you here for another week of the show. Shout out to all of the loyal listeners and shout out to those of you who might be new to the show. Triloquy is a podcast that highlights news, interviews, and perspectives that help expand the ideas surrounding classical music all toward the larger effort of decolonizing the genre. For more information on Triloquy, to catch past opuses, and to contribute to the show, check out our website. It's T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. I'm thrilled to Welcome Marina Sheesh to the show today. She's a Paris-based violinist and arts activist in her own right who will offer her perspectives on this work here in a few minutes. And to close us out today in the weekly triloquy, I'm going to briefly offer a few words to the Charlotte Symphony's new music director. Be sure to stick around for that. But for right now, I want to highlight a bit of the content that I've been spending some time with this week. Uh, so Dell is in Minnesota on business, so I've had a lot of quiet time in the evenings to revisit some interviews and speeches that have helped frame the way that I think and uh, engage these dialogues today. You know, these folks include James Baldwin, Martin Luther King Jr., of course, Malcolm X, uh, Dr. Umar Johnson, love him or hate him, <laughs> but also a man named Kwame Ture, just a little on Kwame. So he, like me, changed his name a little later in life. He was widely known to people in his day as Stokely Carmichael. He was born in Trinidad, but Grew up here in the United States, and he played a pivotal role in the civil rights movement as a pan-Africanist and eventually um, even as an honorary prime minister of the Black Panther Party. So he was a notable person. If you don't know who Kwame Ture was, please go online and do some reading. Um, but his approach to true pan-Africanism was really unprecedented, if you ask me. And I think it's one of the reasons why he's relatively been lost to history, at least from by many people. You have a lot of folks out here today who call themselves Garveyites or remember the name Marcus Garvey. But the fact of the matter is Garvey was among the more, if not most conservative black people fight in that fight. His goal was to, you know, by and large, create Judeo-Christian states of Afro-Americans in Africa, which in itself highlights the insidiousness of white supremacy culture. You see, he couldn't move away from the ideals of homophobia, the patriarchy and other Christian ideals that were used to oppress us. Unlike Kwame Ture, he really did believe in the power of all of the people and how black people have to unite and celebrate our differences to move forward in society. Even in my Buddhist practice, uh, we talk about how a lack of harmony with others limits your own ability. And Kwame Ture really did believe in that harmony of all black folks. Anyway, in his activism, Kwame Ture was always trying to open black people's minds to these levels of racism, how our movement was often turned against us and how the systems of supremacy often 
turn us on each other based on those differences, differences of opinion, differences of background, whatever. Uh, so I came across a really classic interview uh, where the journalist Charlie Rose is interviewing both Kwame Ture and a woman named Elaine Brown, who was also a very notable uh, part of the struggle. And uh, Kwame said something in this dialogue uh, that I would like to highlight here. Take a take a quick listen. So they give us visibility, but no power. So uh, the conditions of the masses, because there's no power, becomes worse, not better. But I don't think Kurt Smoke would say he has no power, the mayor Ooh. of Baltimore. He has no power. He, why would you say he has no power? Well, let me, let me talk about oh, that. Okay, but wait, let me just tell you, I come right to it. Why would you say he has no power? He's the mayor of Baltimore. I mean, he's trying to do things to affect not only... Um, African-Americans, but you, other Americans in Baltimore, I'll tell you why and he has, has no more power. power than... I'll tell you why he has no power. Okay. For us, power can come only from our organized masses. All of our power to bring change in this country come from mass struggle. That's clear. So if the power comes from mass struggle, it is clear to change things. Political power can only come from the organized masses to ensure those changes. And since the masses of our people are not organized, he can have no power at all. None whatsoever. If he does, where's his power base? It certainly is not the mass of his people. And if it's not the masses of his people, the power base must be used against his people. So I don't want to spend too much time unpacking what he said there, but I just needed to highlight it as we talk about inserting ourselves into so-called positions of power. As Kwame Ture said, change is born from the struggle of the masses, not the people of color who's the president of an organization or the chair of a board of directors, right? It's not the concert master or conductor of an orchestra, but it's really from the masses where this change comes. And again, if the masses aren't involved, the structures can easily and will easily be used, excuse me, against the masses as we see in our classical music ecosystems today. People positioned um, to lull a certain part of that mass and, you know, to leave everyone else continuing to speak out and struggle against the status quo only to be assured that change is happening because there's someone who's been strategically placed to maintain the status quo in a different way. It reminds me of this whole theory I have about the Oracle and the Matrix that I won't go into right now, but it really leaves folks who are really, really pushing in a progressive radical way, you know, to be seen as outliers or outsiders, you know, while those who are acceptable and make it into these institutions are seen as the ones as a uh, uh, making the real change. So chew on that for a second. And I'll circle back to it a little bit after my dialogue with Marina Sheesh. Um, so again, she's a Paris based violinist who's done a lot of work engaging concert programming, radio programming and dialogue that's helping shift things in her part of the world and where she travels. So in our chat, uh, we talk about her upbringing and her trajectory. We talk about some of the things that she's seeing in France when it comes to an expansion of the repertoire. Uh, and near, near the end of our dialogue, we talk about black Americans who found their freedom in France and what that relationship between the two countries looks like today. A really great conversation. Uh, to get us into the chat, I want to share a little bit of a work called La Création du Monde, or The Creation of the World by composer uh, Darius Millot. He was a uh, very much a Frenchman, a Frenchman, but he was inspired by Black American jazz and incorporated a lot of those sounds into his music. Um, this piece also comes up in our conversation, so I thought it'd be nice to revisit it a bit um, as performed here by the New World Symphony. So here's a little bit of La Création du Monde to get us into my conversation with violinist and activist Marina Sheesh. Hope you enjoy.
So travel has been a major aspect of my career and possibly my life. Uh, and I have to say it has really informed my progression as a musician and possibly as a human being as well. Because, um, so maybe just to give a sense of the, the type of um, countries I've been in. So I'm French and so I was born in Marseille, which is south of, of France. And I studied in Paris and in Vienna, in Munich. Um, and then already then I was traveling mostly in Europe. And then I had an opportunity to live for one year in Taipei, so in Taiwan. And that was a major experience, of course. Um, and later I was in Germany, also teaching there. And I've, of course, I've played in Japan and in so many countries, let's say. What I, what I wanted to say with the travel is that um, possibly... Being in Taiwan was a major thing because although when I was in Vienna and Munich, I was, um, I mean, I was speaking German. I had been learning German, luckily, but I felt what it was to be not native from a country, but there was a sense of common background, you know, as European. But when I was in Taiwan, I really felt what it is to be the other, you know, where you don't belong. You're so different. And um, so if there is one thing that I could identify with travel is that I, I, don't, I quickly notice when people have been traveling a lot, also in that sense of this empathy that you can develop just from your own experience, you know, to be out of your comfort zone and to, to try to create bridges through different cultures. So, yeah, so that's, that has been one big learning I have had. But in terms of what I could observe, of course, there are so many things. The different teaching styles, uh, the difference of socializing as a classical musician, let's say the importance of classical music. For example, I can share that from my point of view, it's quite different between France and Germany, for example, which are neighbor countries. Um, so for Germany, there is still this sense of music, classical music being an essential part of uh, culture in general. In France, uh, nowadays, it's, it's quite complicated for classical mm. music to have a voice and to matter. It doesn't matter the same way, let's say. Um, also, like performing in Japan, you, you feel an amazing reception from the audience. You feel that classical music matters a lot you know so this kind of observation um are really interesting so you compare you you observe similarities and of course uh, the differences and as an artist it really makes the question of um addressing an audience extremely relevant yeah it's it's interesting to hear you talk about how in france classical music is sort of fighting for its place. It sounds like a very similar story uh, as to here in the United States. I wonder what you identify as some of those barriers. You know, here we talk yeah. about, you know, uh, making sure programming is actually relevant to audiences, mm. you know, getting into diverse populations, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But what what have you identified as the major challenges in France? Well, the thing is that... Um, in, in France, especially, there have been a lot of intellectuals and thinkers uh, sociology, uh, in fields such as sociology. And there is this very famous Pierre Bourdieu, uh, who kind of 
um, analyze the situation with classical music as what we call habitus, you know, like this habits of a certain class, socioeconomic class. So basically, hmm. he kind of um, could very clearly analyze classical music as belonging to this bourgeois, bourgeoisie, uh, you know, um, kind of class of population. And while it's so very true, and it has been so very true, in the meantime, um, a lot of institutions have moved forward with, um, for example, you can get a concert ticket and it's not more expensive than going to the cinema, mm-hmm. right? So so those, those very strong socioeconomical barriers, you know, saying that um, I've, I've been deconstructed but still in the mentalities, there this connection between classical music being for a certain class of people is still very uh, active in the minds. And um, at the very same time, classical music is almost not programmed anymore on uh, general media. Hmm. So on on national TV or national radio programs, like the not the specific for classical music, the usual one, let's say that everybody is listening to, it's so rare to hear anything that has to do with classical music in the broadest sense. So for me, it's a bit like uh, there was a very um, very relevant question about who. Um, does classical belong, music belong to, and could it be for everybody? That's a very, <laughs> still very uh, operating uh, question. But at the same time, I feel it's very sad because somehow classical music has been marginalized in a very strange way. It sounds very strange to say that, but in a way that um, there, there has been a, some people are still and have been fighting to democratize. To, to really give access to a lot of, to let's say everybody, which we'll definitely talk about later, that's not quite true, but to the widest audience possible. And uh, sadly, I think this battle has been lost. So that's where mm. we are now. So now we are kind of, I mean, I say we, meaning like people who love classical music and who believe that classical music matters and can be very relevant to our societies. Uh, it's we start from a very um, hard starting point, let's say. And when you use this phrase classical music, just for the sake of you know clarity of, of conversation, are we talking about what people typically think of? Or when you say the battle has been lost, are all instrumental musics sort of marginalized in France? No, no, that's very true what you say. So of course, what I mean, and I am being a bit caricatural here, right? But of course, because those topics matter to me in sense of like, um, I want classical music in the largest sense to be represented on general media, you know, public uh, radio stations and everywhere. And I want music education to to be a major investment (laughs) from uh, our public uh, services and public uh, governance, let's say. But... um, of course, there is this big debate of what is classical music, and it's it's part of the problem, possibly, because when you say classical music, I, I have been teaching in this um, political science school, you know, to introduce people to. It was called introduction to classical music. Let's say mm-hmm. you know this kind of music appreciation classes, and it was fascinating 
to see students, let's say in their 80, uh, 20s, you know, 18-year-old, 20-year-old. And when I said classical music, the image they had of it was like I was going to play them Four Seasons Vivaldi and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mozart something. And of course I did, but when I played for them uh, uh, Prokofiev uh, Sonata recording and, and somehow they couldn't relate to it as being classical music. They thought mm. it was too violent, too aggressive. And you're like, yeah, so, so the thing with classical music is that it's an umbrella concept that covers so many different aesthetics. Not to mention that, of course, um, in France, there is something, I what I observed as different uh, from the American landscape is that I have the feeling that in America there is an um, less inhibition to cross genres. Mm. So if some composer gets inspired by other type of tunes, other aesthetics, jazz, whatever it is, um, at the end of the day, it's music. You know. So if it's it's great, it delivers, or it's you know it moves your heart, great. Um, my observation in France and possibly in Europe, um, there is still a very conservative approach to anything that would cross genres. But at the same time, as everywhere you could observe, there are attempts and some very successful ones. But of course, that's also part of the question, what are we addressing? But when I was saying, um, so there was a battle that has been lost is that there was a given that a possibly well-educated person would know about like the scan and composers, you know, which for sure for us, like as um, professional classical musicians, now we want to expand the repertoire. We would think it's not enough, but I'm not sure even that is being, uh, you know, um, transmitted or, you know, taught. So. Wow. Well, I don't want to get too much in the weeds with this this single question, but I'm just so fascinated by what you're sharing. So it sounds like I'll, I'll use the example of uh, Darius Mio, the creation of the world. Yes. For us, so at least for me, that is an example of a really great starting point. And then huh. we move forward from there, not necessarily a hugely innovative piece of music, despite the fact that it is largely inspired by jazz. So, Mm. you know, with your saying that there are less inhibitions on the American side for genre blending, would you consider that a piece of music that classical music listeners consider out of the box or, or left field? Is that what I'm to understand? Very interesting that you mentioned that specific one. (laughs) So, um, Again, I can just speak for myself and my perception sure. of what I think people are, you know. Uh, but probably one thing that comes to my mind is that um, there is a sense of hierarchy, very strong, of like what is a good piece, what is a not so good piece, or what deserves to be in music history, what doesn't deserve, you know, all those questions. Again, we go back to that concept of canon and of um, uh, who writes history and for which reason a, a piece makes it through or not. And Mio is a very interesting case because even from a French point of view, um, 
the way I was taught uh, about him in uh, music history, maybe that's the most neutral way to approach it. Not to say what I think about it, but like how I was taught about it is not that Mio was not considered a major composer. Hmm. You know, there was something a bit like of this group disease. So this, uh, right. you know, in Paris. So it's like a very connected to a very precise certain time in history, a very certain context. And so th that's, that is very interesting because maybe part of the um, being considered not that important, the composer is also precisely because it was blending genres. Wow, so, wow, so that's this fascinating. This accusation of not being pure. Mm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's well, but before we go further, I'd like to back up and um, learn a little bit more about your trajectory. So, when I use the phrase classical training, I really yeah. lean on the word training and not necessarily yeah. the word classical because I believe as soon as we pick up our instruments, there is a, a level of conditioning that, you know, comes on us. You know, these instruments are to be played in this way, specifically for this genre, for these audiences. I wonder if you could talk about your entry um, or your introduction, rather, to the violin and what your early trajectory looked like. Yeah, sure. So uh, I started uh, studying the violin. I was not even three years old. Wow. So very, very young. <laughs> And so I started with the Suzuki method, you know, oh, okay. when you, yeah. you know, play from ear. So only for one year. And the thing is that my parents are not musicians. And it matters when looking back at the time, I was not aware how uh, that can affect your trajectory. And so it took so much effort for my mom. So we, we were very invested in the project of me learning the violin, let's say, which is, you know, quite usual in the violinist stories. <laughs> um, so she, it, she was really looking for who could be the good teachers. Also, not living in Paris in France makes also a big difference. Hmm. So you're you're outside. Um, so. So that's how I, 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 I got started in Marseille and I was very lucky because there was a very good teacher there later on but my mom took me to some summer academies and you know it took so much effort really so from from her to to grab the information so that's how i got access to to classical music but my parents loved classical music and they wished they could have got some training but they didn't come from a very well of family so they couldn't um yeah so how did the TV premiere happen that sort of put you on the map for so many folks? Yeah, well, so um, as I said, so from Marseille, then I did the conservatoire. So we have like regional um, conservatories. And uh, when I was about 16 years old, I um, was a bit early at school. So I, I took the entrance exam for Paris Conservatoire. You know, so in France, just to give you a sense of the, the map, so we have two big uh, high conservatories, like maybe um, the two main ones in Lyon and Paris. So Paris being the, the first one, of course, because the capital. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we have a very centralized country. Even if things have been evolving, it still operates like that. 
So, um, so I followed that track. You know, that's that's the typical French pipeline that you come from your city outside of Paris, or if, if you're luckier, I or, or not luckier, <laughs> you live in Paris sure. already, <laughs> and and then you you try to enter this conservatoire, which has a very difficult entry exam. You know, so you we were, I mean, difficult. I mean, it's there is a sense of high election and. Uh, and then uh, that's where I studied um, for three years with a lot of music theory as well, chamber music, and all the extra, you know, things in the curriculum, which are I really loved at the time. And very quickly after that, I went to study to Vienna, in Vienna, uh, Austria, with Boris Kushnir, which is a very well-regarded um, um, teacher. And I was, you know, took me in his class, which was a great opportunity. And... At that time, I kind of got some attention performing in a summer academy in France. Um, some composers, I was playing their pieces and, you know, they, they thought it was convincing. And so like that, by some kind of recommendations, I, I got recommended to a manager, which was a big manager in Paris at the time. You know, and from that on, I got an offer to do my first recording. I recorded Brahms sonatas, which was a <laughs> kind of a challenge. I was not very young, you know, so being very young, it was brave. And um, yeah, and that's how I got nominated for this TV show, which is, um, you know, all countries have this kind of uh, uh, award shows. Sure. And I was newcomer of the year. So yeah, so that's how wow. things started, and I performed on uh, that that show. And funny thing is that my e string broke <laughs> just before the end of the piece, which was a Wieniawski Polonaise, like a virtuoso piece. And um, I could have broken into tears, and I broke into laughter. <laughs> you know, it was primetime TV. <laughs> you know, it's like how could this be happening? And funny thing, I didn't know what one was supposed to do. You know, and of course, the thing is that you need to take the violin from the concert master. Mm -hmm. And but somehow I I got this intuition, so I turned to him and I said, "Oh, I need a violin." <laughs> so we kind of exchanged the violins, and I I just took it from where we were as a conductor. We agreed quickly, and I finished. And uh, you know, it it made an impression, and uh, it's funny. <laughs> What a story. What a story. You know, I, I want to go back to what you said about these two major conservatories in Paris yes. and Lyon. I'm thinking about other areas in France, maybe Nice or Brittany, Aix-en-Provence. Yeah. Am I to understand that there's no music teaching happening in those no, places? No, no, no. Or just no, no, no. Don't worry. No, no. There are <laughs> a conservatoire of region. So, but they are in the cities. So in a region... Uh, I don't know how you could compare it to the to the, the, the United States, of course, but it's like in each bigger city, you have this kind of conservatoire. So you have, um, I don't I don't know how many there are, but the system is different with Germany, for example. In Germany, mm -hmm. you have about 22 or maybe 23 Hochschule, which are mm -hmm. these uh, music universities. So there's so many, you know, like it. And, and in France, partly equivalent, partly not equivalent, because it's it's supposed to be before you go to the, the ones in Paris and the ones in Lyon. You know what I mean? So I there see. is a pyramid, pyramidal system. 
But if you're in Bordeaux, in Nice, and, and very funny to observe that the quality of the conservatoires doesn't depend on the size of the town, of course. So there is I more see. to the culture, the orchestra of the town and everything. Yeah. I see. So so back to this idea of classical training, you've talked yeah. about Brahms sonatas, you've talked about Vinyavsky. It seems oh, yeah. like your foundation was very similar to many of our foundations and really centering oh, those yeah. male European composers. I wonder when new music or music by historically marginalized composers made its way into your practice. Absolutely. That's a great question. So maybe just a short comment about that. Um, between a slight difference between France and Germany, which I could observe already at the time and already in terms of canon, which is very interesting to observe, for me was when I went to Munich, I was about 22, 23 years old for a kind of postgraduate. I had the, the luck to study with Anna Chumachenko, which is a fabulous uh, violin teacher. And it was so interesting because we're at the same age, let's say when I was uh, 16 to 20 in Paris, I would learn a lot of uh, virtuoso pieces and, of course, all this main repertoire. A lot of the sonata repertoire were left out. And, um, for example, Beethoven sonatas, maybe Kreutzer, like the big number nine, mm -hmm. but all the other ones, nobody was playing. Schubert, nobody was playing. Um, you know, this kind of Beethoven concerto, almost nobody was playing. It was supposed to, you have to be old to play Beethoven concerto. I see. And it was <laughs> so funny because in Germany, in Munich, in the Anna Tchumashenko's class, it was the other way around. She would give you to learn a Schubert fantasy or Beethoven number 10 or Beethoven concerto, of course, even if you were 14 or 16 or, you know, there was a sense of training a musician versus training a conservatoire, virtuoso, train, you know. So the difference of culture already between France and Germany. Mm. Germany also, not in Anna Chumachenko's class, but in other classes, having a very strong orchestral culture, you know, mm -hmm. preparing you to enter those incredible orchestras. Whereas in France, there very much less preparation for orchestral playing. But of course, that was just this, uh, you know, um, uh, swimming in this, this small pond of <laughs> canon repertoire. Well, not always so small, but still. And of course, the, the, the big change for me started to happen first when I was much later in Berlin. I mean, not much later, but at the end of my 20s in Berlin. And I did a master in early music. And of course, early music already questioned that, that, that thing of repertoire and of uh, which composers, you know, are, were famous, are famous mm -hmm. nowadays, maybe we're not famous then, or, you know, the other way around. So that early music thing really changed my software. It was one of the first big changes software I had. But I had some impulses already earlier because in Paris, I had a fantastic chamber music teacher who was a pianist, Pierre-Laurent Aymar, who was a contemporary music specialist. I mean, he's much more than just that, but he was at the time very much identified with Ligeti music and, you mm. know, Messian and a lot of just creation, like a premiere. And so he had already a very different approach to 
how you uh, curate a program, what it is a concert program. Mm -hmm. um, also, I studied with Georgi Kortag, the composer, when I was also very young. So it was very schizophrenic training, you know, very contradictory training. So those were like the, I had impulses here and there. But of course, the main realization about marginalized composers for me started from the, the gender thing, the woman composer uh, researches I took on when I was, uh, I, I produced a um, podcast for French uh, national radio one mm -hmm. summer in 2019. And that's where the question emerged for me of like just <laughs> coming from a total blindness to so many topics to wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not a violinist. I'm a woman violinist for some people. And, mm -hmm. you know, coming <laughs> from there, also at that time, uh, emerging awareness of, but wait, I've never played a piece by a woman. Mm -hmm. And so from there, uh, things started to unravel. And of course, now uh, I have extended my, my perception to that, to, to the concept of diversity in the, the broadest sense of the term. And uh, it's, uh, it's incredible just what it, the consequences of what it means as a performer, as a classically trained musician. You inspire so many thoughts in me as as you talk. I mean, with 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 everything you say, I have ten questions. I mean, what I what I just scribbled down here right now. You mentioned the Kreutzer Sonata, and I remember learning a little bit about it. And right, it's yeah. it's history as far as this conversation is concerned. And then to go back quickly to what you were saying about this culture of composers who you know quote unquote aren't so important. Um, when we talk about women composers, you know, we had Jemaine Taillefer right there as a member I of Lacey's, you know, I mean, it's it's just so interesting for me to, you know, think about the fact that so many of these conversations are right under our noses, but we just pass them by or, or don't notice. It, it, it's so interesting how, how that phenomenon seems to uh, go beyond national borders, but just seems to be an issue in classical music globally. I guess uh, it reflects very much in classical music, but it applies to so many other fields. I mean, let's face it. In so, I mean, art, of course, but just sure. everywhere. You know, this Matilda effect that you have in science where women are, don't get the credit, credit for their findings. And so, but just to take that uh, woman uh, glasses, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. But... Um, I was lucky, I think, in the sense that my, so parallel to my violin studies, I studied musicology, which I kept hidden in a way, because somehow there I encountered some, um, how should I say, um, sorry, I need to turn something off. <laughs> oh, no worries. <laughs> I encountered some um, misunderstanding or lack of understanding from people when you you know, you go out of the usual roads, like mm -hmm. the highway. <laughs> you know, it's like, why would a performer bother and study musicology? That was a bit the mentality I encountered. And then the musicologists were like, why would uh, go back and play your scales and your Paganini, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. So I had a bit of that, which also is interesting in what it says about the milieu 
right? Right. Uh, but one of my first um, music history teacher, she was a wonderful, wonderful uh, teacher, and she really made a big point about wh what is this way of telling story about the great composers, you know, great composers. Mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, at the same time, totally uh, making all the others invisible, ignoring that there is a context from which maybe a genius emerges, but still, you know, benefiting from all the inspiration from the, the ecosystem. So it's, I think it's really a mental shift. Mm. And it's not an easy one, because if I go back from to my, my childhood, so my parents were not musicians. And of course, they would buy the big recordings by the great performers of the great composers, <laughs> you know. And so you get a very um, uniform, very, very um, common, very, very not singular approach to, to, to what it is, what, the, what classical music can cover. And there mm -hmm. is so much more. There is so much more. When you talk about this mental shift, you remind me of what I've worked so hard to build uh, my own work around, which is this idea of decolonization. Of course, that yeah. goes beyond just music. I think it goes into the way we dress and wear our hair and just engage in society. But as it um, relates specifically to music, even Western classical music, I've always argued that um understanding and acknowledging the contributions of America to classical music can in itself broaden how we use that phrase, especially when we start talking about um, jazz and soul and these other, you know, uh, autochthonous genres when it comes to the American experience. But what's always challenged me is how that conversation can apply in places in Europe. I mean, it seems like this music does have a home in in Europe. I wonder if you have any thoughts on this idea of decolonization. Can it actually apply? Well, I guess it can, of course. I mean, it's just everywhere. <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> everywhere all the time. As soon as you're you raise your awareness, and I would be, I won't be pretending I have finished my journey. I mean, I mean, we I guess we're all on a journey. And of course. Uh, just acknowledging that is already, uh, you know, part of the, the process. Um, probably, uh, of course, the conversation is French is, in France is absolutely different than in America for so many reasons. We can uh, go into that in a second. But maybe, um, I mean, if you think of uh, Saint-Saëns, for example, mm -hmm. you know, Camille Saint-Saëns, so uh, in, in the 19th century, of course, there have there have been some, you know, this horrible word that we we don't use anymore. Inspiration from the Orient, mm -hmm. <laughs> Orientalism in this music, right. which is totally characterized there, and and of course it's when you perform it now, like Sansons going to Algeria, for example, right? Or so we do have those traces, and of course. Um, in opera, of course, you have a lot of the plots. I mean, there's so much to contextualize at minima, you know. And, of course, this applies to, to a lot of other fields. I mean, I was talking with a good friend at the Opéra de Paris for the ballet. And, of course, they're performing Nutcracker 
again, it's uh, Christmas mm-hmm. time, you know, and the, the end of the season. And they had a huge conversation about, you know, what do you keep, what do you not keep? And in classical music, we do have uh, similarities. And coming from a European point of view, we do have those, um, those question of, of course, you got inspiration from somewhere. And how do you characterize, how was it then characterized mm-hmm. in that context? And what do we do with that today? I guess I, I hope I didn't uh, use wrong terms, but I guess that's that's what the conversation can be about. For me, the the conversation also extends to that question of who plays, who performs classical music, mm-hmm. and who is listening to classical music. And for me, those things are also intertwined. If you look at the the French uh, classical music scene. It's super white. The observation is still striking for me. Also coming back from the States, you know, having spent um, a few months now, like I was in September in New York and October, I was traveling around for a fellowship. It was so eye-opening and coming back, the, the contracts. So, of course, the stories are very different. The conversations are very different. But still there is a question of which role did classical music, I mean, or not which role did it play, but which role was classical being uh, classical music given in some colonial context, and then also in a society that ignores, that keeps ignoring uh, some consequences and some underlying violence connected to this past. Right, right. And I'm afraid it's still very much part of the, the reasons. And the and the issue of you know these conversations being ignored is one thing, but here in the United States, what we call DEI, you know, diversity, yes. equity, inclusion, <laughs> that has also largely been co-opted in a way where so-called DEI initiatives have results and have impacts that actually feed the status quo instead of challenging the status quo. I wonder if you've seen any co-opting of of these conversations, people doing or, or saying certain things all toward the goal of just making the typical concert program look uh, different, so but not necessarily sound different. Well, this is so interesting what you say. Well, as I said, in France, I think, I mean, I think it's not wrong to say, again, I am biased, right? So I just reflect what I observe. So I guess mm-hmm. maybe another French um, classical music musician would say something different, but my observation is that that question of uh, diversity has not even emerged yet. It's wow. just emerging slowly now, and I say I, I feel this urgency because again, having been in America in the last months, coming back makes it so problematic for me. Uh, you know, I'm really uh, thinking. I mean, we talked about being musical activist and. For me, it's very clear that, I mean, I, I, I want to take action and I'm really thinking and looking for inspiration when I look at initiatives such as Sphinx organ, uh, Organization. I mean, I wish we could create something similar here with a specific, um, specificity to, to f- the French landscape, but still some new pipelines need to be made for, for diverse uh, people, like from different region, different origin, different, I mean, whichever category, social background, uh, not musician, parents, we are not musicians. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. all those 
things um, that interfere in the access to higher education and professionalization. But just to go back to the DEI conversation, which is not really yet in France happening in the classical music world, I'm not saying it's not happening in other fields. It is. Hmm. It starts to be. But um, what we maybe we can compare with is a conversation with the gender um, yeah. lack of equity. And it's it. I, I couldn't agree more with you, with your what you just uh, shared. It's like I've heard so many people talk loud and it seems that even people talk about gender fatigue you know it's tired of hearing <laughs> the conversation but look at the numbers mm-hmm. look at the programming in 2020 there was a report so of course it's it goes a bit few years back now but the numbers haven't moved dra- drastically yet in 2020 three percent of works by women composer five percent of conductors women conductors and only 28% of women soloists programmed wow. as solo with the orchestra. And, of course, people, uh, some institutions have been very uh, pioneering it, and you could feel that people took the matter at heart. And But some others, of course, you have that washing thing happening, you know, like greenwashing, gender washing, whatever washing. Right. And it's just, it is something that needs to be addressed as well because we cannot be satisfied with uh, with that. And as you said, so we have a very loud conversation, but very little action. And I say less loud conversation, more action. So what has action looked like for you? What do you mean? Well, as far as, you know, what you program when you're programming oh, solo recitals or sure, the conversations yeah. that you have with people. Absolutely. Yeah. How, how, yeah. how have, how have your conversations turned to action for you? Yes, absolutely. So um, I've been trying to push for, to champion some, some violin concertos I identified, for example, of course, Florence Price, uh, number two is a great piece, not just, but just like shorter possible mm-hmm. to program. It's been recorded. Um, Samuel Coleridge Taylor concerto I've I've proposed for um, just to give you examples, and and I haven't gotten um, uh, positive answers to that. Wow. I mean, depending on the institutions, it was like, yeah, but you know, mm, let's go for Bro concerto, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, and and of course, hard to say no when, of course, in 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 my schedule at that time i i realized well you know what it will work it will be easier you know so where i found um it effective for me is to find the right partners so next month i will perform with uh, rouen orchestra it's in normandy they have an opera house and then there we have programmed we have created together an entire program about uh, women composers but with diversity, by the way, so there will be pieces from Florence Price, of course. Uh, I will perform uh, part of the double concerto from Edel Smythe with violin horn. Oh, yeah. wow. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so I will also like present all the pieces. So before you know, it's kind of a florilege, a little bit of uh, everything to tell the stories as well, because of course it's very inspiring. So for me, it has been about identifying the institutions that are willing to to challenge themselves, do the work, and, you know, get it as an opportunity, not as a challenge, meaning like not as a thing they have to do, but just take the turn. 
And then, of course, where I try to act the most is in recitals. And, uh, you know, because it's easier to, I mean, slightly easier than because then I can really say, I'd like to do that program. And again, uh, for me, it has been part of um, speaking on stage, you know, so like creating a program, creating resonance between canon pieces and then also margin marginalized stories. And yeah. So that's that's how I deal with it. Plus uh, the fact that um, I've been having this, uh, access to radio programs. So of course that is also where I do my activism. Let's say. Yeah, yeah. And for me, I can say going into radio was how I learned a lot about composers who I had never heard of. Just going in the library and reading these names. It's it, it was almost angering for me at first to learn so much after having, you know, gone to school and been in the professional career for many years. It's incredible again how much is just right under our noses. I have not still I'm still not at peace with that uh realization of those untold stories which feel so unfair to me there is a sense of justice here and mm -hmm. of course i'm doing my best to to channel that to make something creative about it and to to be hopeful that we have also an amazing opportunity to transform um those unjust uh, injustice, this injustice into something extremely beautiful. Mm -hmm. Because when we start telling the stories uh, in a conference, in a concert, playing those pieces, there is an extra sense of what we do matters. It, it, it gave me another sense of mission that maybe I was starting to lack as a classical musician in my ivory tower, disconnected from what it means to be a citizen, wondering what is my contribution in society. And then suddenly it was so obvious that, of course, we are part of society and, of course, we need to contribute, but that there is this, these topics that are so difficult to address in normal conversation. It's so mm -hmm. polarized nowadays, you know. And suddenly you take it in the art field. It's also very polarized there, but if we bring our love, our integrity as artists, and again, our emotions. So this pain I have of like this amazing performers, amazing composers that were mistreated by historians, mm -hmm. <laughs> by our society. And sometimes were very famous when they were alive, but some not. And so all those things of thinking, you know what, then what we do matters. Wow. There's, there's so much there um, because I think we tend to think of this conversation as strictly being about classical music but you know oh, no. when you talk about creating resonance it definitely reverberates beyond our our field you know into the way that we treat um women generally you know the way that um people of certain it, racial the way we treat human beings exactly Just, yeah exactly it's 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 so yeah it's i i share i share your sentiment trust me uh <laughs> just quick side question i, I just randomly thought um how is uh, the history of Joseph Boulogne taught or engaged in France? I mean, his is a story that we've really taken, you know. And, I know, and it's wonderful. There is this, uh, yeah, this film. And um, the very funny thing is that I knew of him. Um, and um, I have performed this piece, maybe um, second violin concerto. I think it was about 10 years ago in Berlin. 
was the Berlin Symphoniker, which is one wow. of the small, not the most famous orchestras in Berlin. But so we played it at Berlin Philharmonic. So for me, it was very, you know, it's funny when you have been exposed to a story and somehow you take it for granted. But afterwards, you realize everybody's discovering it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's an amazing um, case study, what happened there. And I still haven't fully figured out what were the reasons why it was erased, you know, or, or not, you know, not mm -hmm. kept into our collective um, imagination, uh, shared uh, stories. Uh, and this is part of the thing I'm still very much learning about of the, the mechanism of um, how can you erase that that type of great careers, you know, mm -hmm. because we some people still believe. I mean, I was I was one of those when I discovered the topic of March composers, and just again to go back to women composer, but yeah. as an example, not at the end per se, right? Um, I had the belief that there were no women composers, you know, and of course I discovered the obstacles they had and the the story of feminism, let's say. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I have still not recovered from the fact that some some of these women composers, and the same with, uh, in a more general way, marginalized composers, were not marginalized in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And this still blows my mind. I again. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a very important part of the conversation because we think of these people so often as oh they had it so hard, but more contemporarily, it's us who has marginalized these people. I'm thinking about now. Um, there's a composer, uh, Mademoiselle Duval. I don't even think we know her actual name. That's just the way that we refer to her. You know, the okay. degree to which this marginalization has happened. Yeah. It's it's really astounding. Yeah, no, it's again, it's it's fascinating, and you could reverse it. So um, there was this um, in I think it was when in Hamburg they were looking for a Kapellmeister, and Telemann turned it down; he couldn't come. And then uh, the people there from the church said, "Well, we have to settle for the mediocre," hmm. and the mediocre was Johann Sebastian Bach. <laughs> I mean. It's just fun to, re I mean, of course, not to take conclusion. I'm not challenging <laughs> the genius of Bach, but just, just to give us a little bit of context that, you know, human makes history. It's, you know, it's not, um, yeah, untouchable. Yeah, yeah that's an incredibly important point. I know. And, of, and again, for me, like all of this conversation is about expanding, expanding the repertoire, expanding the pantheon. You know, we have this pantheon <laughs> next yeah. door in Paris. And, there is so much space in it. It's about time. Well, how can people uh, learn more about you and uh, keep up with your upcoming activities? Uh, well, um, I have a website. <laughs> so it's my, my name. And then uh, I'm on social media. I have been quite active at some point. I had a blog, but mostly in French. But I, I'm thinking to you know, to keep posting and maybe make it bilingual. And of course, because I've been more in the States and it's it's fun to, I need that international perspective for my own sanity, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And I think we all need to learn from each other, inspire each other, because of course we can all uh, be sad of the limitations and the, 
of the, the speed. I mean, not the speed, like this, how slow things go. But I think we can really learn from the best practices. And I, I want to keep that sense of the world being big and mm. wide. Yes, absolutely. Well, I wanted to close with a question that sort of points us outside of the arts, even though there still are those connections. There's a long history of marginalized people in the United States, specifically Black people, going to France to find yes. their freedom. I'm thinking of James Baldwin, Josephine Baker, Nina Simone spent many years in France. I wonder how you would react to the idea of France being a place of respite for marginalized people now in the 21st century, especially considering, you know, what what you've shared with me when it comes to the similarities between the social constructs of our two countries. Well, it's so funny you would ask that because I had um a similar conversation with some friends of mine. So there are two things. Um, when you are aware that there could be or there should be <laughs> a diversity conversation in France, and again, how, I don't know, but that something should be addressed that is not being addressed, you're immediately accused of wokeism. It's mm. like, <laughs> you have not even opened your mouth. So just mentioning that maybe, you know, something could be done differently. Like there is no, uh, you know, and, and it's, and it resonates. In is a that very, even what it's called in French? Wokeism? Wokeism. And <laughs> nobody knows what it means. You know, so the, the, the definition is changing depending on who's talking, you yeah. know, but still there is a sense of like, in a way, I have started to take it as a compliment because what it means, as soon as you challenge the status quo a little bit, that it is about gender, but whatever it is, you're opening the box. It's so dangerous. And, and in a way, I agree with people who are afraid. They should be afraid because it is scary what it is, what it is about, but, but not addressing it is also very scary. You know. So anyway, so, so there is this, this thing about um, happening in France. And also we had that conversation because there are so many prejudice, discrimination that are proven by a lot of research. You know, when you look for a job, you look for a flat, you know, we have, of course, all of that this is happening. And so possibly I would say the other way around hmm. that some people would need to go to them to the States to feel free to have the conversation. So we had exactly the reverse um, observation of, isn't that interesting that at the time it used to be that people would come to Paris to, to find this freedom and to find this space where somehow um, they were not stuck in, a, you know, in the perimeter. And now it, I'm afraid it might, as a fantasy from France, be that it should be the other way around.
Marseillaise featuring Marina Chiche avec l'Orchestre de la Mer de l'Air. Excuse my French there. <laughs> so glad to have gotten the chance to chat with her and to get a perspective on what this battle looks like in other parts of the world. Really appreciate it getting to share that conversation with y'all. Okay, so this is going to be super quick. Before the interview, I highlighted uh, that Kwame Ture, what he said about power and how visibility isn't power, right? Well, I want to put that into context with news from Charlotte. Their symphony made history by naming a black man their music director, a man named Kwame Ryan. Uh, I have to say, I don't know much about this man. I'm wishing him uh, the best, all of the success in his new role. But I'm also thinking about all of the other black conductors we have out here and still no true decentering of Eurocentricity in our orchestral landscapes. I accept and celebrate that black people come from all backgrounds and from all perspectives when it comes to classical music, even all the way to maintaining things as a sign of black people's ability to do anything that we want to do, including including conducting the so-called standard repertoire. I get that, and I celebrate those human beings. I think that's great. And I think there's a large group of Black folks who aren't making it to the top of these decisions, uh, these decision-making positions and at the top of these institutions, people whose decolonial ways of thinking still don't have a place and still aren't welcome in orchestral ecosystems. You know, Kwame Ture died of colon cancer in 1998, I believe, and he was struggling to keep his movement of true pan-Africanism and decolonized thought alive in light of what he saw as Black people more interested in respectability politics and acceptability politics. Let's not continue to make the same mistake. Let's celebrate our brother Kwame Ryan with the Charlotte Symphony. And let's also understand that power really does not come from the person who's standing on that poem. Let's see how his training and his conditioning manifest this time next year when we've seen how he's approaching his job as music director. Let's see how much freedom he's really being given and let's see how much he's expected to maintain certain aspects of the orchestral ecosystem. Let's see how long he's able to keep his position, considering the board of directors and other folks who are behind the scenes. And I don't know anybody on the board. I'm not shooting any shots. I'm just speaking generally based on what we've seen over and over again over the generations. Let's continue to center what can be instead of centering what is when we see news like this. And let's remember that we black people, people of color, other marginalized folks historically, we are seen as the primary and most effective tool of the perpetuation of the American status quo of classical music. If you do not understand that and do not see that as a truth, I believe it will be all that much easier to weave you into the status quo so that it can be perpetuated. I'm, these are the questions and ideas that I'm having when I see this news. And I encourage you to do the, the very same thing. In the words of uh, one of my great teachers who's texting me right now, actually, <laughs> I'll, uh, uh, he, he often says, I'll congratulate you when I see the work that you've done. It takes more than simply being accepted into a predominantly white institution for me to say to you, job well done. And I say that with love as someone who honors the Buddha nature of all people, especially my fellow black man. I honor Kwame Ryan and I want to see what happens. Thanks so much for joining me. <laughs> I hope that was trill enough for y'all this week. And I'll talk to y'all again in about uh, seven days. Peace, light, and love. Nam yo ho renge kyo. See y'all again soon.